Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. The song you just heard was an interesting one. Um, probably not the most worshipful song, although it probably probably is worshipful somewhere, but just not here. Um, of course, the Beatles' All You Need Is Love was performed on June 25th, 1967. More than 400 million people in 26 countries watched that performance. It was the very first uh, satellite broadcast live worldwide there in 1967. For those among us who, who maybe have some, some musical skill, if you listen to that song, it's an interesting one because uh, the verses are written in 7-4 time. And so, uh, so most, of course, rock and roll is 4-4, something along those lines. And so the Beatles come at you with 7-4. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry, that's okay. You don't need to. If you do know what I'm talking about, listen to it, and you'll be like, oh, wow, that's incredible. Um, the song was Britain's contribution to the show Our World. Again, broadcast to this massive worldwide audience of 400 million people. Of course, in 1967, that was incredible. John Lennon's lyrics were very simple, deliberately so, because they were intended to allow for the, um, the show's international audience to be able to, to kind of hear what the song was about. It, it captured also the, the utopian ideals associated with the hippie culture and the summer of love. And some of y'all are live back then thinking, all right, preacher, getting a little too close to home now, okay? It topped the charts in Britain, the United States, lots of other countries, became an anthem for the counterculture's embrace of flower power philosophy. Truth be told, I don't have a clue what flower power philosophy is, but it was on Wikipedia, and it was too good not to mention this morning. Some of y'all may be able to give us some tips, though, so if you know anything about flower power philosophy, I'm happy to, uh, to talk with you after the service today. Uh, it may take longer than we have, though. Um, you know, it's interesting to hear that song, how close the Beatles got to, to real faith. And they're so close, right? But close doesn't count when it comes to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which the gospel is neither hand grenades nor horseshoes, and so close doesn't cut it. One of the Beatles, George Harrison, said this. He said, I wish I could do a British accent that would do it justice, but I can't. He says, uh, we thought, well, we'll just sing All You Need Is Love, because it's it's kind of a subtle bit of, of PR for God, basically. That's a cringeworthy statement, especially when you put that beside one of John Lennon's most famous quotes, the Beatles are more popular than Jesus. You really do get a sense that, that the Beatles didn't really have a clue what true love was really all about, at least the kind of love that we encounter in the Word of God. So today we're beginning this new five-week series called One Another, The Ethos of Christian Community. When you read your Bibles, you can't help but notice that that little two-word phrase, one another, shows up over and over and over again. It's literally littered throughout the pages of Scripture. It, it shows up in 94 different verses. Roughly half the time that we see that phrase, one another, it is giving instructions to the church on how we ought to behave toward one another. Thank you. Somebody's paying attention. All right. Most of the time, these instructions are straightforward, although we do find instructions to greet one another with a holy kiss 
on four different occasions. I'll be honest, I'm not much of a hugger, but I can promise you that if I have to choose between holy hugs and holy kisses with y'all, I'm going with holy hugs all day long. Uh, (laughs) It's also important to remember that that this idea of one another, it implies that, that these defining characteristics given to us in the Scriptures really are defining relationships within the body of Christ. You know, the Bible gives us lots of instructions for how we are to treat outsiders, right? The Bible gives us instructions on how we're to treat our enemies. The Bible gives us instructions on how we are to treat unbelievers. We even, we even get biblical instruction for how we should treat believers who are acting like non-believers. I mean, the bases are covered for how we treat people on the outside of community, but this idea of one another is all about being on the inside. Look around this room. When the Bible talks about one another, it's talking about this community. It's talking about people inside of the body. So when something shows up with that level of frequency, we would be very wise to make sure we're paying close attention to what it has to say. So as we get into this series, then I would challenge us this month to allow the Word of God to shape our relationships with one another. That we would allow the Holy Spirit to develop these principles of one anothering amongst ourselves, and that we will allow our community to be shaped by these commands as we encounter them throughout the Scriptures. Jesus told his disciples that the one defining characteristic that would most define his people to a watching world was what? John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for. For the next five weeks, if I do this, you know what's coming. Okay, let's try it real quick. Just just get all, all on the same page. Here we go. Yeah, all right, see? There we go, almost charismatic today. Um, So let's get started this morning, and we're going to find that the Beatles were sort of right. We do need love, just not the kind they sang about. And there's no greater apostle to teach us about the importance of love than John. And so today we're going to start in John's first letter. We'll be in 1 John, and we'll kind of move from there. It'll be our base today, 1 John. So if you you find your place to 1 John, if you don't know where 1 John is, look at 2 John and go backwards, and you will have found it. Okay, we go to 1 John, and we're going to look at chapter 4, and we're going to let, this, let the Apostle John launch our conversation today about loving one another. If you've got your place and you're able, would you stand with me as I read from 1 John, beginning in chapter 4 and verse 7. Beloved, let us love. All right, see, now you're paying attention. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love. No one has ever seen God. If we love God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. 
Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is so, also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God, must also love his brother. Father, I thank you for your precious words and for the precious instruction that John gives us here in these verses. May we apply them well. May we be known as a people who love one another as we recognize love comes from God. And so may that be evident to those who are watching. May the world around us understand what it means to love inside the body of Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Those 14 or so verses are a mouthful, and they really do warrant an entire series in and of themselves because there is so much content, there's so much incredible things that John gives to us inside the pages or inside these 14 verses. And so there's no possible way that I can give it the treatment that it deserves this morning in the amount of time that we have because it's, it's July 4th Eve, I believe, and so uh, uh, so. so You've got things to do today, I understand. Uh, of course, the very first obstacle to us being able to have this, this conversation is, is really being able to arrive at what a reasonable definition of love is according to the Apostle John. We've all heard sermons before about the different kinds of love that are expressed in the Bible. And, and we, all we can do is simply translate it with our four-letter word, L-O-V-E. And as we know, the English, the, the English definition of the word love is really, it's really a, a tough one to nail down because we can, we can have incredible love like we have towards our spouse and towards our children. We can have very shallow love like we have towards our, our favorite food or our favorite sports team. We can have this, this worshipful love that we have for God. We can have all sorts of different love that's expressed in our lives. But the Bible, thankfully, the original language as it original languages at least have some some nuance there that we often miss of course we understand we have romantic love we have brotherly love that's why it's called philadelphia the city of brotherly love that word that that part that philae is is that is that that brotherly kind of affection but the love that is most highly prized and sought after in the bible is this god kind of love that maybe one of the only greek words you may know that word agape that points to that, that kind of God kind of love. Now, I don't exactly know what kind of love the Beatles had in mind. To be fair, they probably weren't too sure either, you know, if we're, if we're honest. One researcher asked a group of children, what does love mean? And you know what kids are going to say. Um, love, they say, is when you go out and eat and give somebody most of your french fries without making them give you any of theirs. That was Chrissy age six. Uh, Terry, who is four, said, love is what makes you smile when you're tired. 
Danny at seven said, love is when my mommy makes coffee for my daddy and she takes a sip before giving it to him to make sure the taste is okay. That's sweet. Bobby, who's five, said, this is, this is a good one. Love is what's in the room with you at Christmas if you stop opening presents and listen. Aw, look at y'all. Uh, Noel, age seven, says love, and I don't know what Noel's thinking here, but she said, love is when you tell a guy you like his shirt and then he wears it every day. <laughs> May Ann was age four. <laughs> she said, love is when your puppy licks your face even after you left him alone all day. Karen, uh, not that kind of Karen, Karen, age seven, said, when you love somebody, your eyelashes go up and down and little stars come out of you. <laughs> Jessica, who is seven, said, you really shouldn't say I love you unless you mean it. But if you mean it, you should say it a lot because people forget. And then Rebecca, age eight, she said, uh, when my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. Does anybody do that? No, you don't have to tell us. It's okay. Keep it between you. Um, those definitions are helpful. Probably not completely and totally inaccurate. But I do think we also need to understand that God is not silent on the issue either. According to John... Love finds its very origin in the character of God. John tells us that God is love. I've always thought that was an interesting phrase because we live in a world today where it would very much like to flip that around, right? Where, where John says that God is love, but our world today would really love for us to say that love is God. After all, that's what the Beatles were just singing about, right? I mean, that's what that, that a high ideal is, that love is is God, but you see, the problem is that's nothing short of idolatry. From the Beatles in the Summer of Love in 1967 to some of the latest catchphrases we see in our current contemporary culture, there's no shortage of people who think that this emotion called love is the chief end of man. But you can't help get the sense, though, that the love the world is chasing after isn't quite like this agape love we find in the New Testament. Now, don't get me wrong, it is a grace of God that he has given us the ability to love apart from saving faith in Jesus. I wouldn't want to live in a world where people who were not Christians didn't understand what love was. I mean, think about that. But God has given us a grace where, where even people who don't know God can know something of love. For example, a non-believing mother can taste something of love when she holds her newborn baby. Uh, she may not be a Christian, may not know who Jesus is, but when that baby's laid on her chest for the very first time, that mother understands something of what love actually is. A, a non-believing husband, he can, he can understand something of love when he sees his bride come through the, uh, come through the, the, the doors wearing that beautiful white gown, and, and he sees her for the first time on his wedding day. That, that certainly is romantic love, but it's deeper than that. We certainly understand even a soldier who would fall on a live grenade to save the lives of other soldiers in his unit. may not be a believer, but we certainly can understand and recognize and appreciate that, that act, that demonstration of love. There's no doubt that all of these are valid expressions and experiences of love. 
This is God's common grace poured out on people who are created in his image and likeness. It's the same idea that the rain falls on both the just and the unjust. Love is one of these things that we experience even if we are not believers in Jesus. Our ability to love and to be loved are built into us as human beings created in the image and likeness of God. You may deny the image, but your denial doesn't make it go away. It doesn't change the nature of who you are. But we do understand that as, as we deny that image, then we start to get off the rails when it comes to our understanding of love. After all, that's the warning in Romans 1, right? As, as people drift away from a recognition of who God is, the, 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 the opportunities for disaster begin to increase, which is why in our culture, in our civilization today, love looks less and less like Jesus and more and more like selfishness and sexuality. And that's the character of our world today. If you say, ask what love is, it's going to have to do with things like that. And the further we move away from God, the more our ability to love is damaged by our rebellion against God. So we understand God is love, and because God is love, then we must understand that as the body of Christ, that, that God kind of love, that, that becomes the defining characteristic of what love in the body of Christ looks like, that idea of sacrifice and self, selflessness. John continues there in 1 John chapter 4, look at verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This sounds similar to something John said in his gospel in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The cross, it paints the clearest picture for us of what this God kind of love actually looks like. You can't look at the cross and see selfishness. Nobody goes to the cross of their own volition because they're selfish. Nobody willingly lays down their life because they are selfish. You can't look at the cross and see any kind of perversion on the part of Jesus. It's simply not there. But what you do see when you look at the cross is that you see God moving mountains to pave the way into a relationship with you. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't go to the cross because he needed anything from us. The suffering of Jesus was not motivated by any kind of deficiency within the character of God. Jesus' work on the cross was a work intended to save sinners. And in doing so, it showed us how we should love. Those of us who were in Christ are sinners who've been saved. We look at the cross and we recognize that there is a picture that has been painted for us of what this agape kind of, of New Testament love actually looks like. John chapter 15, verse 13 says this, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. The most physical manifestation of God's love for us is found in the willing death and sacrifice of Jesus. John draws this word propitiation out in verse 10. That's a word you don't use in everyday conversation, right? You don't have coffee with somebody and say, you know what, the propitiation I just experienced was incredible, right? I mean, we don't talk like that, so that's a Bible word that we have to dig around and understand something of. 
But it's an important word in the Bible. It's an important word that, that helps to explain to us something of what happened on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ because propitiation is not something we deal with on a daily basis. Propitiation is a particular dynamic that's at work within the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Propitiation has to do with God's wrath and hatred toward sin, towards our sin specifically being satisfied. And that's what's incredible about this. God hates sin. God hates every color of sin, every shade of sin, every manifestation of sin. God hates sin because God is holy and perfect and just. And because of this terrible thing called sin, there is this great divide between us and God. There is this great hostility between us and God. Yet in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, God is able to satisfy his hatred and wrath towards sin through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, which if you just stop and think about it, it's absolutely mind-blowing. That God hates sin, God has this, this, this terrible hatred towards sin, yet God satisfies that wrath towards sin through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's remarkable. When we start to understand this, I mean, these are big, these are big ideas. Big ideas have big consequences, right? Big ideas have big consequences, and one of the primary consequences of this big idea is that our attitudes towards one another must be shaped by this reality. It must be shaped in the light of God's completed work in the gospel. How we see each other has to be colored by the completed work of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If the consequence of God's love for us is that he has satisfied his wrath against sin so that we could be in a right relationship with him, then there has to be consequences for how we treat, how we are, how we behave, how we act towards one another. Because the fact of the matter is, how can you learn these things and not be changed? How can you learn about God's loving nature, God's loving actions that were taken on your behalf and not be impacted? How can you hear the good news of Jesus, respond to the gospel, and not be changed forever? The answer is simply this. You can't. You can't. And John comes to the same conclusion. If God loved us in such a profound way, how can we not then go and love others, particularly within the body of Christ, in such a profound way? I'm reminded of that story back in Luke chapter 7. You know the story. Jesus went to a Pharisee's house for dinner. And Pharisees were never looking for reasonable conversation with Jesus when they invited him for dinner, when they were wanting to sit down and talk with him. They were looking for opportunities, for evidence to use against him. They were looking to trap him. And as Jesus is there at dinner, there was a, there was a woman. And her character is, is, is called into question fairly, fairly quickly, which I always say, what's she doing at the Pharisee's house in the first place? But that's beside the point. There is this woman at the Pharisee's house, and, and she comes in great humility to the feet of Jesus as he is there. And Luke is very, is very dynamic in how he paints this picture. He talks about her weeping onto his feet and her tears wetting his feet, and, and she's wiping his feet with her hair, and she's anointing them with this, this expensive perfume. And so, I mean, the picture of this woman and this, this great act of, I mean, let's call it what it is, it's worship. This great act of worship that's extended to Jesus here, and everybody's mortified, right? 
I mean, here's Jesus, the Son of God. Here's the, here is our rabbi. Here is, the, here is the guy we're all following. Hey, rabbi, that woman that's, that's down there touching your feet, you know where she was last night? And that's the question they're all asking. And nobody's saying it that way, but we know that's what they're thinking. And it's scandalous. And I mean, this woman, she's got this reputation. But Jesus challenged them in verse 41. He said, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other only 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose. I love the I suppose. It's like I'm afraid to answer this because he he might turn this on me, so I'm going to just put an I suppose in here just in case he turns it on me. He says, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus didn't turn it on him. He said, you have judged rightly. You see, as Jesus followers, and we, we understand something of how deadly and destructive and gross and awful our sin was and how much God has shown his own love to us, that can't leave us unaffected. It can't leave us untouched. It can't leave us unchanged when we understand just where we came from. You know, one of the worst things that happens to us as Christians is we forgot how lost we were. We, we, we do this Christian life and we, we, we do the things where we know we're supposed to do. We come to church and we, we check all the boxes and, and we just forget who we were outside of Jesus, who we were apart from Christ. And folks, we were awful. We were wretched. We were destined for a punishment called hell. That's what we were before we met Jesus, and then he rescued us, he ransomed us, he delivered us from sin, and gave us new life in Christ. That should change us. That should rearrange us. That should affect how we treat one another. So all this leads to the question, how do we see this kind of love worked out in real life? I mean, we hear it, I mean, you even ask a question, you know, Paul McCartney, all we need is love. Well, what does that even mean, really? I mean, what, what is that even, what are the, what's he saying? Uh, well, again, here, the Bible tells us you should love one another. What is that even communicating to us? How does that affect us in, in our daily interactions with one another? How does it show up in real life? Well, I think we know some ways that it doesn't. <laughs> our, our former church, we used to let the neighborhood next door use our sanctuary for their HOA meetings as long as they promised to behave, right? I mean, that was the, the quid pro quo. As long as you do right, you can continue to meet here. But if you get rowdy and mad and you start cussing and all that kind of stuff, then we're going we're, you know, to cancel this meeting. And I'll never forget the first time I, I, I went, I just went to go meet the president of the HOA and get to know the people and and uh, the president of the HOA came up, he, he shook, uh, you know, before COVID, before you were sure, you know, can you shake hands, is that okay? I stuck my hand out, and I, I'll never forget this because it was traumatic. Uh, I stuck my hand out, he grabbed the back of my head, pulled me close, and planted a big kiss on, the, on my cheek. I'm not making it up. He, he... H-E, I don't know which would have been more scandalous, he or she, grabbed my bald head, pulled him in, and kissed me on the cheek. I almost slugged him. Like, 
don't kiss me if I'm not married to you, okay? I don't. And if you're a dude, <laughs> you especially better not. Uh-uh. And I jumped back. He said, what's the matter? <laughs> you tell me, buddy. And that wise guy said, doesn't the Bible say you're supposed to greet each other with a holy kiss? And I said, yeah, I said it. I'm sure it also says something about if you do, you take your life into your own hands. I'm, I mean, that's the, that's, the, that's the caveat that's not there. I don't think uh, he was messing with me. Guy was always uh, joking around, but uh, he just about got hurt that day. Um, <clears throat> that's not how you do it. But I do think that we find a good summary of an answer in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. The church at Corinth was a mess. You don't have to be in church long enough. You're going to hear somebody criticize the church at Corinth. I'm glad Corinth is in the Bible because there's always a church worse than, than anything you can come up with. Okay, So there's Corinth, and, and, and Corinth is a mess. But thankfully, they are experiencing problems, which means that the letters, 1 and 2 Corinthians, give us some really good basic brass tacks information, entry-level stuff of things that we need to know and be reminded of. Because again... They're, they're a mess, right? I mean, like Romans is full of rich theology and, and, and remarkable doctrine because the church at Rome is not struggling like Corinth is. Paul's having to tell the church at Corinth, y'all don't get drunk before you take the Lord's Supper. Like simple things, right? That, okay, we probably shouldn't worry about that, but Paul has to deal with the church at Corinth like this. And so there's all this stuff that they need to be reminded of. And so just to remember this, we have this incredible logical progression. Love is revealed to us in the character and person of God. And therefore, our model of love in the body is sacrifice and selflessness. And therefore, our attitudes towards one another should be shaped by these principles that we see in the gospel. But what are some of the basic gold standard expressions of love within the context of Christian community? And I'll say it this way. The greatest work that we as God's people can do within the body of Christ is love. If your brain is telling you that I'm about to get to 1 Corinthians 13, then you've been paying attention. The interesting thing about 1 Corinthians 13 is that we often say that's the wedding passage, right? I mean, that's the passage the preacher's going to read at the wedding, like Psalm 23 is a passage that's going to get read at the funeral, right? But here's the thing. 1 Corinthians 13 is not about romantic love. It's certainly applicable to husbands and wives, but it's not exclusively reserved for that kind of romantic love. What Paul is talking about to the church at Corinth, he's telling this group of people what godly love looks like and how we get to dwell in that as Jesus' followers. And Paul here is giving us this gold standard for how we should deploy the simple instruction in the New Testament that we should love one another. So, I want to do invitation this morning a little bit differently. And instead of having a time where I stand down here and we stand and we sing, I want to take a few moments of what I'll call a, a guided kind of invitation. And so I want to look at the verses in 1 Corinthians 13, but I want us to approach these verses with this in mind, that each of these Phrases, each of these statements in 1 Corinthians 13 give us a defining characteristic of what love looks like. And as we walk through these verses, I want you to just pray in your heart 
Just pray in your mind and ask God to show you where in these things you may have some deficiencies. Because here's the thing, I'm going to tell you this. You can't read through 1 Corinthians 13 and say, I've got this nailed. You can't. Because the standards here are so rich, are so incredible, that you're not going to be able to read through this and say, I'm, I'm doing 100% at all these things. Because the fact is, is you're going to look at these things and you're going to say, you know what, I'm, I'm struggling here. I'm coming up short here. I have a deficiency here. And so what I want to do this morning in these next couple of moments is I want to walk through 1 Corinthians 13 as a guided time of prayer. And I will pause for a moment after each characteristic just to give you time to listen to the Spirit's voice, listen to the prompting of the Holy Spirit, listen to the conviction of the Holy Spirit to say, you know what, Brian, here is a place where you're coming up short. Brian, here is a, a blind spot in your life. Brian, here is a place where, where you're not living this out well. And again, not to fill an altar, not to do anything like that, but just so that you in your pew in this next few moments can really listen to the Lord and let the Scripture speak directly to your heart. So as we finish this morning, I would invite you to just bow your heads, close your eyes, whatever the Lord would lead, and just listen to the Word of God as it challenges us in this Scripture-guided response. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love is not arrogant. Love is not rude. Love does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable. Love is not resentful. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Love rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. 
love believes all things. Love hopes all things. And love endures all things. God, in these last few moments, your word has painted a picture for us of what true love looks like within the body of Christ. It's given us an image of what it truly means to love one another. And Lord, your word did not give us a list of thou shalt nots. Instead, it gives us a list of positives and negatives things that we ought to do and things that we ought not do. But Lord, we understand that if we are honest with ourselves, if we're honest with you, that maybe there is some envy in our hearts. Maybe there is a lack of patience. Maybe there is resentfulness or irritability. The reality of these things is true and it affects our relationships with one another. God, we understand that a watching world needs to see a body that understands what it means to love. And I thank you for your word that calls us to that radical kind of relationship with each other. We come from all different walks of life, all different backgrounds, all in different seasons, but you still call us to love one another. And as Paul concludes that chapter, may we recognize it as essential for us today. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.